Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City, a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. For this episode, I talked with Michelle Deitch. Dr. Deitch is a distinguished senior lecturer at the University of Texas Austin's LBJ School of Public Affairs and Law School, and she's the director of the Prison and Jail Innovation Lab, a policy resource center focused on the safe and humane treatment of people in custody. She's an attorney who's worked for over 35 years on criminal justice and juvenile justice policy issues with state and local government officials, corrections administrators, judges, and advocates. We discussed oversight and accountability options for deadly jail conditions, the risks of treating children as adults in the criminal legal system, and some best practices for jails. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, well, thank you, Professor Deitch, for joining us today on The Permanent Record. Um, I wonder if you could start off just by telling us about the Prison and Jail Innovation Lab uh, that you've got going down at the University of Texas. Sure, thank you so much for having me, Josh. Um, the Prison and Jail Innovation Lab is a new policy resource center at the University of Texas. And we are focused on efforts to ensure the safe and humane treatment of people in custody, and we're trying to improve correctional oversight. And we basically serve as a bridge between policy, practice, and research on these issues. Yeah, one of the reasons um, we wanted to have you on is in Shelby County, we're in Memphis, Tennessee, as you know, um, our jail, um, as a lot of jails across America are, are experiencing right now, has had a, a rise in deaths. And, um, it, and it's a growing problem, though, it seems here. And I wonder if you could comment on that trend nationwide and, and if there are similarities in facilities that seem to uh, rise above. What are, what are typically the problems and why are we seeing this uh, in our jails right now? Yeah, so problems of deaths in custody are not unique to your community by any means. It's happening in, in jails and prisons all over the country. And it's, it's a serious concern. Um, part of the problem is that um, uh, you know, prisons and jails are uh, oftentimes very understaffed. And so you don't have as much supervision of, uh, of the people inside as there needs to be. So you see high rates of suicide. There's also, um, uh, well, suicide and violence. Um, but also we have a very large number of uh, people with mental illness who are incarcerated and jail is just the wrong place for these folks, but um, they are very vulnerable to, um, to suicide. We're also seeing a lot of um, uh, a lot of people uh, coming in under the influence of drugs. We're seeing fentanyl and other drugs getting into facilities. So we're seeing people die of overdoses. Um, some facilities are very violent. And then in addition to that, um, particularly, well, certainly during COVID, we saw how extreme uh, uh, you know, the uh, crisis can be when uh, transmissible diseases, infectious diseases hit these facilities. Um, and in, especially in prisons and in jails, because of really inadequate medical care, we're seeing that there's a lot of uh, deaths from diseases and illnesses that people just shouldn't be dying from. 
Yeah, what are good practices to protect against some of those things you mentioned, suicide, drug overdoses? What, what can facilities, what should facilities be doing to minimize this? Uh, that's the, uh, it's a huge question. And the answer really differs a lot for each of these um, types of deaths. But one thing is making sure that facilities are appropriately staffed and that the staff have the kind of training that they need to be able to identify people with suicidal um, ideation, that they're identifying them at the time of booking, as well as at various points in the um, time that they're in the facilities. We need to make sure that um, uh, people with mental illness have somewhere to be going rather than the jail. Right? There needs to be diversion opportunities, um, uh, you know, just places in the community that don't involve incarceration just because we know it's the wrong place for them. Um, you know, People who are intoxicated shouldn't be brought into the jail. They need medical supervision. So I mean, that's just some of the things off the top of, uh, top of my head, but any one of those could be explored in more detail. Yeah, um, excuse me. Yes, one of the things that um, we always talk about in, in, in it, sort of dovetails with our work in this community at reforming the bail system is fewer people in the jail. Um, Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, that, that helps the staffing, right? If there are fewer people to, to monitor. Um, no, is that something that, is that something you've seen in both jails and prisons and, and how do communities and states do that safely and effectively? How do they reduce those populations? Well, there are so many ways to reduce populations. Um, and, you know, it's, You've mentioned the bail reform issue. That's certainly one of the things. Um, we don't want to see people in our jails who are in there simply because they're too poor to raise money for you know, a $250 or $500 bail. Um, you know, money should never be a proxy for how risky someone is. Um, but unfortunately, that's commonplace all over the country. Um, so that's one way to reduce the uh, um, reduce populations in our jails is by... Um, you know, reducing reliance on on bail, um, but you know there are other ways too. Whether it's speeding up court processes or um, ensuring more pre pretrial diversion options, um, making sure people just aren't brought to the jail in the first place, giving citation releases so that people don't come into the front door of the jail. One other question before we move away from this a little bit is about accountability. Is about when it does happen and how we. Um, how we understand as a community why it happened and how we can help prevent it from happening. Um, I'm thinking about things like um, uh, mandatory reporting on facilities, uh, community oversight, for example. I know some communities have uh, community oversight boards for, for some of their detention facilities. What are, what are things that we can do when we, you know, we aren't the sheriff, we aren't the agency running the facility, but how can we demand accountability and transparency in, in how things are done? Well, for starters, there needs to be some really important policy changes. There needs to be a requirement that all deaths in custody get reported to a central state agency. And this isn't just for your county, it's you know across the state. Every single death in custody needs to be reported. There shouldn't be any loopholes such as, you know, if someone's dying, you quickly release them on compassionate release and then you don't have to report that death. But all of those deaths need to be reported. Um, Secondly, any death in custody should not be investigated by the sheriff where the of the jail where the death occurred. You know, you need an independent investigative body. So um, there should be some mechanism by which 
a different law enforcement agency can investigate that death. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the public is more likely to trust the results of any investigation if it's not the sheriff saying, nothing to see here, folks, this had nothing to do with us. Um, in many cases, it really maybe didn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, any wrongdoing on the part of the sheriff, but it should be an independent investigator that determines that. Yeah. And then another key thing is that um, there needs to be some kind of post-death, post-mortem review. What happened here? Why did this death occur? Um, are there any lessons we can learn to take with us to prevent these kinds of deaths in the future? And, you know, that is so rare. A lot of times a death will be chalked up to, oh, well, the other person was mentally ill and therefore they committed suicide, as opposed to looking for, well, what could we have done differently with this person or with people in the future who have these kinds of uh, you know, similar, um, you know, similar characteristics? Um, kind of a critical incident report like, or review, like they would do in a, in a healthcare setting. Absolutely. A sentinel event review, critical incident review, postmortem, whatever you want to call it. Right. Right. And and you mentioned in reporting to a single state agency. I wonder, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but I wonder if you can point to a state that has, uh, or maybe you've done some work there at the lab, where uh, the, the single state agency that collects that also maybe has another role to play in terms of, uh, of establishing best practices or, or, or something like that. Is, does that exist? Oh, absolutely. So Texas, for example, um, has what's called the Texas Commission on Jail Standards. Um, and there's about oh, a little over half the states in the country have some kind of state level oversight over jails uh, in the state. Um, it takes different forms in different places. But in Texas, it's an independent state agency called the Commission on Jail Standards. It has multiple roles, including setting standards for the jails and then inspecting the jails to see if they're in compliance with the standards. But another one of their responsibilities is that any death in custody has to be reported to the Commission on Jail Standards. Um, and so it is a, a more standardized process and it does allow for the collection and analysis of that data. Well, Texas is a notoriously progressive state, so uh, I want, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, uh, Tennessee and Texas are often lumped together in, in, in how they see things like, like criminal justice and punishment and crime, and, and, but you have that, and, and we don't have a similar body in, in Tennessee. What do you know about its, its creation, and, and maybe that will lead us into a conversation about um, some of the misconceptions of progressive, quote-unquote progressive versus conservative states and how they deal with, with issues of incarceration like this? Sure. I don't see this issue of jail oversight as a um, you know, partisan issue at all. It's not about progressive or, uh, or conservative reform. Um, it's really about trying to ensure some accountability and transparency about what's going on inside the jails. So the Commission on Jail Standards in Texas was created back in the 70s, which was a time when there were a lot of lawsuits about conditions of confinement in prisons and jails. And the sheriffs in the state got together and said, hey, um, you know, we may get sued. One of the things we could do to actually protect ourselves is to develop a set of minimum jail standards. And if we're all complying with those standards, we're less likely to be sued successfully. So it was that. actually done as a way to protect the sheriffs to put those standards in place. 
Now, I actually work with a lot of jurisdictions around the country. I've been looking at standards in different uh, different states. Um, and I could tell you that most states actually don't have very good standards. When they say minimum standards, they're not kidding. They are minimal. Um, and a lot of them ha are very vague. A lot of them have huge gaps. So there's a lot that needs to be improved about that. But at least conceptually, it makes sense that there should be a set of standards that apply to all facilities across the state. Sure, sure. And some mechanism for making sure that the jails are actually doing those things. That's a fantastic answer. I, I like that. And that I want to talk a little bit later about you know how you transfer some of the learning and the, and the knowledge that you're gathering there at the lab into practice, practice like for for groups like Just City. So, but, but we'll put a pin in that and, and talk maybe a little bit about. Um, and I've heard you speak in your TEDx talk in particular about uh, how we treat children um, in incarceral settings and in the criminal legal system more broadly. And um, I wonder if you could just maybe introduce that topic to us and, and, and identify that, that TEDx talk was a few years ago. And so there's some updates and maybe 2023 is different from 2015, but speak to the state of things when it comes to uh, how we should treat kids, how we should, if we should detain them, and when we do, how, and um, just set that up for us a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. So in this country, we have a separation between our juvenile system and our adult system. So in most states, Texas being one of the exceptions, um, the age of 18 is a dividing line. So if you're under 18, you go into the juvenile system. If you're over 18, you go into the adult system. But what a lot of people don't realize, and what I didn't realize until surprisingly late in my career, was that every state has a mechanism by which young people under the age of 18 could be transferred to the adult system, can, where they can be prosecuted as adults. And in many of the states, uh, if you are a kid who gets transferred to the adult system, you will actually be how you're treated as an adult for all purposes, for sentencing purposes, but also for where you are housed, including being housed in an adult jail while you're awaiting trial or and housed in an adult prison while you're um, after you're convicted. Um, and back at the time that I was studying these issues in much more depth, uh, I discovered that the laws actually allow for kids as young as um, as young as seven to be transferred to the adult system, which is utterly shocking. Um, and I think I don't remember the exact numbers, but I want to say that uh, uh, there are like twenty seven states or something where if you're younger than twelve, you could be transferred to the adult system. Um, so that's you know that's horrifying. So then questions come up about like, what, what happens to you if you're a kid and you go into the adult system and what kind of risks do you face? And it turns out it's extremely risky as you would think to put kids in with adults. So, um, and the, to be clear, the jailers and the prisons don't like this. I mean, this is not good for anybody, but right, um, right. You know, it's, so it's, they're between a rock and a hard place, you know, either the kids are in with the adults, in which case they're at very high risk of being physically or sexually assaulted, um, or they go into 
what amounts to isolation, solitary confinement, just to keep them away from adults, in which case it's really um, devastating for them psychologically and, and physically. And we see you know, that there are kids who um, die by suicide as a result of that. So to complicate things still further, there's a federal law called the um, Prison Rape Elimination Act, which um, Congress passed um, back in in the early 2000s, and then in the mid 2000, mid around 2012 or so, um, uh, Justice Department put forth regulations that spelled out how this is supposed to work in practice. And one of those rules is that any kid under the age of 18 has to be sight and sound separated from an adult. So now you can't mix those the, the young kids in with the adults, but it does result in a lot of kids being held in what amounts right. to confinement. Yeah, yeah, we've we've seen some of that in Tennessee over the years here. Um, I want to touch on um, something that's come up in our community a lot recently is um, is a narrative uh, that um, that often judges. Uh, in particular, juvenile court judges who, in Tennessee at least, have uh, the say as to whether children are transferred. A uh, district attorney can, of course, file that transfer notice, but a judge is ultimately responsible, or a magistrate in our community, for um, sending a child into the adult system. And so we've been told uh, uh, that that blend, so-called blended sentencing is one solution uh, to this, that that if we give judges, if we give the system some sort of middle ground, because the the, the excuse has always been, well, I, this child is 17 years old, but the, the longest we could hold him in custody is X number of years. But if we had a blended uh, opportunity, we could, uh, we could, you know, of course, the language then switches to resource. We could provide resources for this child into, into their 20s. Um, speak to the idea of blended sentencing and whether you've seen it be successful. What are the concerns and risks of implementing a system like that? And, and if if it's uh, successful, why? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a somewhat complicated issue, but on the whole, I think it is important to have um, that blended sentencing option. Um, in Texas, we have blended sentencing, which uh, we call determinate sentencing as well as the opportunity for what we call certification, which is transferring a kid to the adult system. I've never understood if you have the blended sentencing option, why would you need the option to send a kid to the adult system? So I, it seems to me that if you have blended sentencing, you don't need to be transferring kids, which I think is good. The downside is that depending on how the blended sentencing statute is written, it could still result in extremely long sentences for youth. So in Texas, under our determinant sentencing scheme, a kid could still get a 40-year sentence. Now, what the distinction is that you start your, your sentence in the juvenile system, and at some point you age out. In Texas, we'd be at age 19, you age out. And then you go back before the judge who decides whether or not you are sufficiently rehabilitated or whether you're still a risk to the community. Um, and then the judge can decide whether you should continue to serve your sentence in the adult system or whether you can be released on adult parole. Um, so that's that's the way it works here. I think on the whole, it is a, um, it's better than transferring a kid to the adult system, but I think that those sentences that are available are still way too long. Right, right. Um, that is a great point. And, and 
sort of on the flip side of that, we, we're having a conversation at the state level, but it's clearly um, driven by narratives out of Memphis. Um, that direct transfer may be a solution to this, that um, not even stopping at juvenile court and considering the, uh, the, the problems with transferring children into the adult system. Is that happening in, in a lot of states right now? Are, are states considering you know, skipping the, the juvenile system entirely for certain offenses for kids of a certain age? And, and if they are, what are the risks with that? Yeah, um, I, the movement around the country is to get rid of that, right? Right. Um, yeah. And it's to, if you're going to have any system for transferring kids to the adult system, it should be a judicial decision where it is individualized. The judge can see the youth, figure out what mitigating factors might exist figure out um, what this kid's risks are, uh, vulnerabilities are, needs are, et cetera. Um, but when you've got a direct transfer system or automatic, it's called different things in different states, but an automatic transfer system where the legislature has decided for such and such a crime, this case kind type of case will always be handled in adult court. That just, there's too much injustice that ends up resulting. There are too many kids who simply shouldn't be transferred um, because you know not all murders are the same, not all sexual assaults are the same. And um, you know, the risks that are presented by kids are very, very different. And we shouldn't lump everyone in one category. Right, right. Um, obviously, I agree. <laughs> um, let's, you know, this is the section that I think you and I could probably spend hours talking about because uh, the work you're doing is is so compelling for organizations like Just City. It's one reason we we invited you uh, to talk. And and you're doing important research. You're doing it at a major institute, major institute of higher learning in in this country, um, and uh, that is so needed in in states large and small. So talk a little bit about how your research uh, sort of can can flow down to organizations like ours, to states, to, to the advocacy that's going on in communities like Shelby County. What is your hope for uh, the kind of work you're doing at the lab? Oh my gosh, I could talk for, about that for a whole <laughs> I um, knew. So, I mean, we're a small entity. Um, uh, there's basically two or three of us, depending on how you count and at which point in time. Uh, we do work with our students on a lot of these projects, which gives us a little bit more of a... Uh, um, uh, you know, we're able to draw on a lot more uh, manpower than we otherwise would have. But um, we take on projects that we feel have the opportunity to have a broad impact. So a lot of our research is on independent oversight of prisons and jails and what kind of oversight structures can be created to ensure more transparency and more accountability of um, conditions of confinement and the treatment of people in custody. So we work a lot with lawmakers around the country who are interested in developing oversight bodies. Advocates will reach out to us. Um, uh, we work with oversight practitioners, helping them figure out how to do their work more effectively, how to be, you know, how to strengthen the role that they they play. Um, we put out research about what methods are. Um, are effective and where oversight bodies exist. In fact, we're about to launch a new website. Um, our new initiative is called the National Resource Center for Correctional Oversight. And it's gonna be an online one-stop shop for everything related to prison and jail oversight. 
And there's literally hundreds of pages of content on there. Um, you know, got interactive maps showing where different oversight bodies are and how each oversight body is structured. Got information about um, why we need oversight and what it could look like, all the publications on that. So this is gonna be information that people like, like you around the country can draw on. If you want, you're, you're thinking, wow, Shelby County really needs some kind of oversight structure or the state really needs to develop a, um, you know, a jail standards commission. What could that look like? Where do they yeah. exist? You can turn to this resource um, and look for that kind of information. So that's one way that we think that we could be very, very helpful. Um, we also put out a lot of research on where, um, uh, about living conditions in prisons and jails. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Working on, we're working on a new project that is trying to identify um, positive initiatives in prisons around the country. Like where are good things happen? We spend a lot of time talking about all the bad things happening. Where are the good things ha that are happening? And I'm um, yeah. trying to identify those so that they could become a model for other other places. So anyway, these are the kind of resources that we have available and that we hope people will draw on. It's exciting stuff. We will um, we will definitely look for that uh, that new resource on um, on correctional oversight. That's uh, something we definitely need. Definitely need in, in Shelby County. I'm going to ask you a question that I asked a lot of folks. There's a variation of uh, at the at the end, and and it's about the role of mercy in in a, in a criminal justice system, in safety, in in punishment, in in rehabilitation. I mean, these are all words that we throw around when we talk about crime and and, and punishment in the public safety systems in our country, but. But mercy often gets gets overlooked as having anything, any role to play in that. I wonder what role you think it has to play in some of these things we're talking about. I, I think it's essential. I mean, we've got to have empathy as we look to the people who are in our criminal justice system. Uh, we all want to be safe, but we also have to be thoughtful in our approach to um, uh, the kinds of you know, sanctions that are applied to people in the criminal justice system. There are so many people who are locked up who simply do not need to be there, you know, either because they have long outgrown their, uh, their crime prone years and they're simply aging in prison and they're not the same person they were when they committed the crime. There are people who, because of their mental illness or, um, other other factors really are less culpable for the the crimes that they've committed. Um, you've got youth who are you know we know youth are less less culpable, less blameworthy, um, more capable of change. I think that if we could approach our criminal justice system with a, more of a sense of empathy and mercy, we'd all be better off. And not only does that make for a more humane system. It also makes for a much more cost-effective system because as we get people out of these facilities who simply don't need to be there, the tax savings would be mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a great point. That's an excellent point. Well, Professor Deitch, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We'll make sure and post a link to the Prison and Jail Innovation Lab in the description of the show. And uh, we really appreciate, appreciate you giving us uh, the time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. That was my conversation with Dr. Michelle Deach, director of UT Austin's Prison and Jail Innovation Lab. 
Thanks to Dr. Deej for taking the time to speak with us. Also special thanks to Ryan Azada for his recording, editing, and publication support, and to Dylan Sandifer for helping produce this episode. Our theme music, of course, is Jeff Hewlett playing She Got Gone. Jeff's got new music out seemingly all the time. Check him out on Spotify. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work and find previous episodes of this podcast at justcity.org. Follow us on social media at justcity901. We invite you to subscribe to The Permanent Record wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating. Leave us a review. It helps us build our audience. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.